Welcome to the Pathologist Cut Podcast. This RCPA podcast explores the broad medical specialty of pathology and the critical role pathologists play in medicine and healthcare. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce Professor Peter Collignon. I am. Peter is an infectious diseases physician and microbiologist at the Canberra Hospital and professor at the ANU Medical School. Peter is a member of many national and international committees for organisations such as the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare and the WHO. He was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2010 for services to medicine in infectious diseases microbiology and infection control. Peter, welcome. We live in interesting times with COVID-19, influenza, RSV and other viruses circulating in the community. It looks like Australia's in for a bad winter. Can you explain why it's particularly bad this year? Well, there's something called an immunity debt. In other words, we've been so good over the last two years, we actually had no influenza, much to my surprise. I thought influenza was always below the radar and comes up in winter because there's factors in winter that make it easier to transmit. You're close together, you're indoors, humidity's low, all those things. But influenza seems to be important because the only influenza we really had in Australia over the last two winters after we had um, the lockdown of the international borders were people that came back in into quarantine. So that was surprising. We did have other viruses like rhinovirus, parainfluenza still circulating, but much less so. And in particular, if you look at 2020, the number of people that went to doctors for respiratory infections was markedly lower than we've had for decades. And that's because of the restrictions on people not moving around. They just transmitted respiratory infections less to each other, not only COVID, but every other respiratory virus as well. So that's been going on for two years until late last year. And then when we had opening of border and I guess perversely because we had high levels of vaccination, which are very good for COVID, that actually mean people intermingled more. And so you got exposed to viruses you hadn't seen for a couple of years in any numbers. And then we got suddenly quite large numbers and unusual uh, outbreaks. For instance, in late last year, we had big outbreaks of RSV in children uh, around different places of Australia. That's because they'd had very little for two years and the children were just susceptible. So in seasons that weren't the usual season, we got large outbreaks of RSV and we're starting to see that again. So far this winter or even in spring, we are seeing larger numbers, influenza's back, for instance, although the numbers overall aren't more than we saw in, say, 2019 and 2017. But and, you know, what it'll do over the next few months, we'll just have to wait and see. But it's very likely you'll have a bad flu season or RSV or rhinovirus or anything else if you haven't had any for a while. But because particularly children haven't been exposed and they, for RSV and influenza, have a lot more. So there's a lot more potential, if you like, for naive people to be exposed, who've never been exposed to before. They will have bigger numbers, bigger viruses and spread it to others. So what we're seeing so far is what I would expect for a winter where you haven't had anything for a few years. Um, whether it gets really bad or it ends up just as bad as 2017 and 19, which weren't great, but you know we could cope. Um, I hope it's that way, but we'll just have to wait and see. 
So we know a lot about COVID-19 at the moment, but how dangerous is influenza and who's most at risk? Well, for all diseases and infections, um, those most at risk are those who are older with underlying health diseases and immune problems. So if you look at COVID, for instance, before vaccines were available, if you were over the age of 80 and you got COVID, you had a 10% chance of dying compared to a 30-year-old where it was about one in 10,000. Now, with vaccines, which are highly effective at decreasing your risk of hospitalisation and death, that risk has been dropped tenfold, if not 20-fold. So providing you're vaccinated and if you're older having had a booster, your risk now of dying of COVID is probably similar per infection than if you got influenza. So markedly lower, but not zero. And so um, that's why it's important. The more at risk you are, yes, be vaccinated, but you also have to take precautions to decrease your risk of getting any respiratory infection. You know, dine outside at lunchtime with your friends rather than having people over for a dinner that goes all night. Um, Try and keep your crowded, you know, keep the numbers down inside. Wear masks if you have to, if you're in situations where you can't do it. All those things don't make your risk zero, but they decrease your risk. And the older you are, or the more you've got some underlying health problems, the more important it is to protect yourself, not only with vaccinations, but with physical precautions as well. Peter, what's the positivity rate for influenza at the moment? And is it different to previous years? Um, well, data I've seen from New South Wales and Victoria doesn't suggest it's, it's different. In fact, um, if you look at influenza-like illnesses in Victoria, it seems to be the same as a, it's a bit earlier, but the same as, you know, bad winters. And in New South Wales, I thought the positivity rate was about 20% for influenza. You know, of all testing you do for influenza, about 20% positive, but coming down. Now, whether it's going to stay or go up, I'm not sure. But the two numbers you need to look at for knowing how bad influenza is is what's your positivity rate and also the numbers. The trouble with just looking at numbers, there's a lot more testing now than there was five years ago. So even if you see three times the numbers, it doesn't mean there's three times as many cases. So you've got to look at positivity rate because that tells you where you are in your epidemic curve. But you then have to look at other parameters like hospitalizations or deaths, because essentially I would think most people who are sick enough to come into hospital from influenza will have a test and you can then more meaningfully compare it to previous years. So, you know, I think we need to do more testing for lots of viruses because I think it tells us more what's going on. But comparing to the past when you're doing a lot more tests, you've got to be careful. You might remember with hepatitis C, sometimes it looked like we suddenly had a big epidemic, but that was only once we had tests available. So all these people that had it for ages, we weren't, you know, detecting. So we, you've got to be careful when we have really great new tests available, which we have with PCR all the time in pathology. But once they become readily available and more uh, used, you can suddenly see a big spike that isn't really as, you know, indicative of a change in the cases because so many before were undiagnosed. That's the difficulty with international comparisons. Oh, it is. And even for COVID, um, I think the only true measure of how you're going is the number of deaths you're having per million people or 100,000 yes. people. Because I think in countries that are well off, we won't miss all that many deaths from COVID because they will get tests, tested. But it's a real problem for developing countries where money is in short supply. In those places, you've almost got to look at excess deaths, you know, because usually they do record if you're dead or not. You may not know what they died from, but if there's an excess in deaths, it says at the moment that's likely to be COVID or yeah. the indirect effect of COVID 
you know, not being able to get medical care for diabetes and stuff like that. So it's complicated, but um, a lot of the things we use have got to be careful if you're not comparing oranges with oranges. And that often is unfortunately the case with international comparisons and even in Australia with comparisons with a few years ago. Alongside influenza, RSV is the most common reason for children going to hospital for a respiratory illness. Can you explain what RSV is and why it's causing more problems at the moment? Well, RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. So it's in a different family to influenza and COVID. But it's been there and has always been there. Um, they are working on vaccines, but so far we don't have a vaccine that's very protective, um, but hopefully that will change. But it's essentially a real problem for children because they've never been exposed to it before. So it's a very common cause of pneumonia, bronchiolitis, and is as common, if not more common than influenza. In fact, um, over the COVID epidemic, luckily children appear much less susceptible to COVID and at least the consequences than adults, probably because they don't have the ACE2 receptor where the COVID virus latches onto. But they have great um, you know, infections or great susceptibility to RSV. So often during the COVID years, the last two years, RSV has put a lot more children into hospital than, for instance, COVID has. And there's no reason that that's not going to change until we come up with either drugs that are effective against RSV, which we really don't have either, or hopefully vaccines that really decrease the risk for the very young children in particular. Adults can get RSV as well, and so can end up with pneumonia and cough, but probably are more vehicles of spread to younger children rather than necessarily causing overwhelming disease in adults, probably because they've been exposed so often in their lifetime and therefore they have a reasonable level of immunity um, that stops them getting anything other than minor disease with it in the vast majority of people. But again, um, there's an overlap here. People who are, you know, in their 50s can get quite bad RSV and it can put them into hospital with an ammonia. It's just it's much, much more common if you're a young child because you won't have any immunity and therefore you're very uh, susceptible to the more deleterious effects of it. The only good news is, while it's very common in young children, often they're only sick for a few days, at least from a hospital perspective, and then make a rapid recovery. But some can get very sick, some need to be ventilated, and unfortunately, even some very young children can die from it. Your symptoms for uh, influenza and COVID-19 can be quite similar. Should people still be tested for COVID if they're unwell? And now influenza? And why test for both viruses? Well, I think this is the problem with any respiratory illness. People tend to think, oh, influenza, you know, when you've got that compared to the common cold because the symptoms are so much different. Um, that's not generally true. There's such an overlap of symptoms. You can't tell what virus you've got. And that's why pathology is so important. Now, you can argue who needs to be tested. My view is everybody who comes into hospital, particularly if they're a child, needs to be tested for a variety of viruses because the treatment for influenza is different to the treatment for COVID which again is different to RSV, for instance, the big three. But again, it's worth knowing whether you've had rhinovirus or common viruses as well. So that's why at our hospital, at least in Canberra, we do multiplex where we look at um, a variety of viruses on anybody that might need to be admitted, particularly a child, RSV, uh, influenza and COVID. But in a lot of people, we may well look for other viruses as well, parainfluenza, rhinovirus. Um, that helps the public, inform public health to know what is there even if you can't do anything about it. But particularly for influenza and COVID, there is therapy and you need to know what they've got and you can't tell what they've got on symptoms. So you need pathology testing 
with PCR, obviously the best because it's the most accurate, sensitive, et cetera. Um, so that's the way to go for people who are sick enough to need to be in hospital. Now, for somebody who's other, you know, a 30 year old who's otherwise well and has got a bit of a cough and a sore throat, um, you can argue there's not a lot of merit in there because while there is therapy for influenza with Tamiflu, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. You know, it might make you sick for five and a half days instead of six days. You know, it gives you half a day benefit. But where it's needed for people who can come disastrously sick, those who've got underlying health conditions, those who look like they're sick enough to go to hospital, we need to know very quickly what they've got. And that's why they need testing to know, have you got RSV? Have you got influenza? Have you got COVID? Because there's quite different therapies depending on the test result that pathology gives you. What are the treatments available for COVID-19 and influenza? Well, for COVID, there's now a lot of therapy. I mean, there's a lot of infused antibodies, for instance, particularly beneficial in people who haven't been vaccinated, which hopefully is less and less. But, um, you know, th those infused antibodies of various descriptions, the monoclonal antibodies have been developed, seem to be very effective, depending on the type of decreasing your mortality. Um, if you're sick enough to be ventilated, for instance, a drug like dexamethasone increases your survival rate. There are other antiviral drugs, protease inhibitors and other uh, basically anti-COVID drugs that appear to decrease, again, mainly in those unvaccinated, but even in vaccinated, um, you would give it to people if they're sick enough to come in hosp into hospital. Um, there's remdesivir as well. There's, so basically, there is now a lot of therapy. There's therapy that decreases your inflammatory response if you are bad enough to go into ICU and get ventilated, such as dexamethasone. There's a whole lot of infused antibodies you can give people that basically gives them some immunity straight away because we've infused it into them. Um, there is also a whole lot of antiviral drugs available now and more probably going to develop that also decrease the replication of the virus. So we're in a much better position now than two years ago. But equally, if somebody presents with respiratory symptoms, the only way you know which of those drugs to give you, because influenza therapy is different, for instance, with Tamiflu, you need to know what they've got. And that's why pathology is such a vital component for anybody very sick or sick enough to come into hospital, because that means they're the people that very likely need therapy. And we've got now specific antivirals, depending which virus you've got. So, Peter, talking about testing, we went through an extraordinary time over Christmas, New Year, where you had this massive surge for different reasons for COVID testing with huge queues. How are laboratories coping with the demand for testing now? Well, I think they're coping better than before Christmas because, perversely, there's less tests um, being done. Now, I don't think that's necessarily bad. When we're in the stage of, want, of wanting suppression to really low levels or zero COVID, you need to know who had it. And the best test then by far, and still is, is the PCR test. But we've changed now. We're not going to get rid of COVID. But what we've achieved with vaccination, we have decreased your risk of dying by over 90%, and you know, probably 95%. So our risk now, if we get an infection with COVID, is no different than if we get influenza. And so we're not going to shut down society every winter and have lockdowns for influenza. So we've got to keep it that way and we'll have to see what happens with vaccines and how often you need it. But basically, we're in a different situation now. So that means not everybody has to be treated. It doesn't matter if we don't know that everybody's got COVID. Um, if you're sick, whether it's influenza, RSV or COVID, you need to keep away from other people. So we need to change our behaviour that people with respiratory symptoms stay at home as far away as they can 
as is practical from even their you know family members sleep in a separate bedroom with your own bathroom if you can all those sorts of things um, but they shouldn't go to work <laughs> they shouldn't associate with friends until their symptoms have gone now that will decrease the transmission of lots of infections not only COVID if however you're uh, got underlying health problems you do need to know it now this is where Perversely, while rapid antigen tests are nowhere near as good as PCR tests, they're probably a more indicative of how infectious you are. Perversely, because they're not as good if they're positive, um, you know, and, and on the basis that false positives aren't all that common, it actually means, hey, you're a more of infectious risk to others. And they're the people who should stay away from others for a bit longer while we're still trying to, if you like, keep it COVID down at a different level. So the approach now is different to what we would have had a year ago. And the variety of tests you use would be different. Although if you're seriously ill and you have to come into hospital, in my view, you still need a PCR test to try and differentiate all those three different possibilities you might have because the therapy is different depending on what you've got. We're used to um, often getting infections once and having immunity for life. Why with respiratory viruses can we get repeated infections, often relatively soon after another, including with COVID? Well, I'm not sure any of us have got necessarily the answer to that. But for serious infections like measles, that is a respiratory virus, there seems to be only one type of strain. And if you get infected, you seem to have very good immunity. Anybody born before 1960 has got immunity without vaccination. And vaccination for measles, for instance, and for rubella gives you very good protection because of this lack of strain variation. Um, the difference with influenza is it changes all the time. You get shifts and drifts. So you're exposed to a virus that's slightly different. Um, and that's probably the same for COVID, why people get it twice. So having said that, um, people don't usually get it twice anywhere near as often if you're not immunized, for instance, or never had it. And the second infection tends to usually be milder. You know, it doesn't put you into hospital as much, all those sorts of things. So your previous immunity does protect you. But I think one of the issues is if a infection um, is mainly mucosal, and I think COVID usually is, you know, it's nose, throat, some people it invades, gets down to the lung. Uh, immunity by vaccination is nowhere near as protective because the vaccines we give give you good T cell responses and antibodies, but don't get to your mucosa. And so I think for a lot of respiratory infections who predominantly aren't invasive or systemic, you have systemic side effects like fever, but they don't probably in the vast majority of people invade, then having systemic immunity is not going to be the answer. And that's probably the problem for whooping cough as well. The whooping cough vaccine is one of our least effective vaccines as well. So I think for a whole lot of respiratory viruses, we're going to have to end up coming up with a better type of vaccination that gives you mucosal immunity because that's where you stop the initial replication of the virus, which actually stops your symptoms and also stops you giving it to others. That's where I think we need a lot of research because it'd be good if we didn't spread these viruses around to people all the time. And I think it needs a, probably gonna need a different approach because it's how do we stop mucosal replication rather than the systemic effects of a bad viral or bacterial infection. You mentioned masks. With the recent change, public health change from wearing masks in airports, they want people to wear masks on the flights but not in the airport. Do you think that mask wearing is a practice that we should take forward into the future as a good public health measure generally with respiratory viruses? Yes, I think 
we should, because I think masks give both protection to the wearer and to others. Now, there's two issues here. Um, mask mandates don't seem to work very well, at least on epidemic curves. But for an individual, um, I think you do get protection from masks. I mean, you probably, with a surgical mask, get a 15% reduction in your risk. Now, that's much better than nothing. And I think, you know, there's a lot of studies that now show that. There was a good study in um, Bangladesh, one in Denmark. You know, you can argue about statistical significance. And there was another one recently in FLOS. All of it implies you get a 10 or 20% personal protection. And there was another study done at Westmead in the early 2000s that looked at a families with children that were sick and gave them masks. And what was interesting, if you wore the masks, you got an 80% reduction in infection risk from your children. The problem was people didn't wear masks. So even when you get highly motivated people in a high risk population, you had less than 50% compliance after three days. So essentially my short answer is, I think masks do protect you. But if you're gonna find people and mandate it, you might be able to do it for a short period of time, weeks, but you can't do it for years. So I think we need a cultural change that people, first of all, think it's unacceptable to come to work if you're sick. But secondly, if I've got an infection, I'll wear a mask because I think that stops you disseminating your or decreases your risk of disseminating to others. So there is, even in the home, you know, it may be worthwhile. And I think we should definitely not frown on people wearing masks because I think that's a sensible thing to do if you're at risk or want to decrease your risk. So I think we need a culture shift to get more like the Asian view of masks, you know, who wear them for various reasons, because I think it does decrease your personal risk and your risk to others. But I don't think we should mandate it or find people um, because I don't think you get this convincing evidence that makes difference on a population level over a period of time. Should healthcare workers, including doctors, wear masks? If you look at influenza and even COVID, probably less than 5 or 10% of the infections come from healthcare workers. And there is at least one paper I saw that showed that if people wore masks all the time, they were perceived as having a lot less empathy and communication with the patient. So infections aren't the only parameter we should look at. We've got to look at healthcare as a whole and balance, you know, the good versus the bad. So I don't think even in, you know, countries that wear masks a lot, doctors don't necessarily wear masks all the time. It may be during high risk times. You know, if you have an influenza epidemic, it usually goes for about four to six weeks. It may be four to six weeks, people should wear masks. And yeah. I think the other thing that's really neglected is eye protection. I've been involved in a couple of papers over eye protection, and I might say this yeah. dates back to 1919, some of this data. But if you protect your eyes, you have a markedly decreased risk of getting infection um, with COVID and with influenza. Um, we did a meta-analysis with a group from the Gold Coast, uh, you know, Bond University, and it showed of the published studies, if healthcare workers wore eye protection, a face shield, on top of a mask, they had a 50% extra reduction in infection. And you can see why the eyes are important. Your eyes are open all the time. Somebody coughs or sneezes, deposits in your eye, and it goes straight down your nasolacrimal drug to your nose. Well, the nose yeah. is where most of these infections seem to occur. The volunteers they got in England to be infected with COVID, it was all nasal infection where it started. Now, some people get it going down to their lungs, but Anything that deposits in your nose is a bad idea and your eyes yeah. deposit in your nose. Yes, fascinating. So, Peter, what is the main 
take-home message for everyone this winter? Well, I think the main take-home message is you need to protect yourself as much as is practicable. You need to do yourself your best yourself not to give infections to others, family members, friends, people in the community. And that means apply common sense. I think hand hygiene, you know, respiratory etiquette is ongoing important, including the use of masks in some situations. I think that also we should be thankful that pathology can give us such good and accurate answers so quickly, because if anyone gets seriously ill, that's essential to now give them the right um, you know, management stream with the right drugs, the right support to give them the best chance of getting better. So uh, there's lots of things that I would do for the general population. Um, obviously get COVID um, vaccinated if for the few percent of adults in Australia who aren't, you know, please change your mind and get vaccinated. Avoid as many infections as much as you can yourself and avoid as much you can giving it to others. But from a pathology point of view, I think we should be very grateful that we've got such great facilities in pathology to give accurate and rapid diagnosis to people that makes a huge amount of difference for their outcomes in hospitals and when they're seriously ill. And eat El Fresco whenever you get the opportunity. Well, the other thing um, is as much as possible to decrease your own risk, outside air is protective. I'm, I'm about to um, get a paper published that shows something called outside air factors. Outside air has got factors in it that kill viruses and bacteria. This seems to be controversial. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but there's no doubt, maybe because of dilution, if you're outside, you are much, much less risk of getting COVID. I mean, you decrease your risk by 95%. That's better than any drug or immunisation we've done. So the more yeah. you're outside and not inside, the safer you are. So do that as much as possible, particularly in Australia, where we've got, even in winter, great weather. So we've got a lot of things on our side in Australia that can decrease our risk by doing the things we enjoy. So do more of that. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut podcast with RCPA president, Dr. Laurie Bott. To learn more about pathology, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.